The Productive Woman, Episode 366. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Thank you so much for joining me. In this episode, we're continuing our recurring productive reading series, this time talking about some lessons I've learned from Cal Newport's newest book, Digital Minimalism. You'll find more information and links in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 366. So as I said, this episode is a continuation of our recurring series, Productive Reading, uh, where we talk about books that are relevant to our productivity journeys. So in the past, we've talked about lessons and key takeaways I've found in books such as Gary Keller's The One Thing, uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, three books written by Brene Brown, Uh, Courtney Carver's Soulful Simplicity, The Free Time Formula by Jeff Sanders, James Clear's Wonderful Atomic Habits, Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt, Attention Management by Maura Neville Thomas, The Minimalist Home by Joshua Becker, and most recently, Effortless by Greg McEwen. I will have links to the episodes that discuss those books in the show notes, but this time I'm sharing some of my most important takeaways from a book I read real recently. Uh, It's a 2019 book by Cal Newport, who's the author of, among other things, the best-selling book called Deep Work that I think I've mentioned once or twice on the podcast. So I recently read his 2019 release, Digital Minimalism, and I've been looking forward to talking with you about it. So let's get into that. First of all, who is Cal Newport? Uh, The book cover flap copy describes him as an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University and the author of six books, including Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You. Uh, The book cover flap copy goes on to say, you won't find him on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, but you can often find him at home with his family in Washington, D.C., or writing essays for his popular website, calnewport.com. So what's interesting, or one piece of information that's interesting to know as you read this book, Digital Minimalism, is He's not on social media and he never has been, but he's written a book about the effects of social media and other digital tools on us. And, and that's what this book is about. Why did I read it? Well, I have heard about this book from several sources I respect, and I was intrigued by its premise, which I'll talk about here in a minute especially since I personally have struggled with the conflict between the convenience and the utility of the devices, electronic devices and the apps and things that I use uh, on the one hand and the overwhelm of always being on, always being connected. I thought maybe this book would offer some insight into regaining some sense of control and peace in what Newport refers to as our tech-saturated world. Uh, So if that kind of resonates with you, you might find this book interesting. 
on the front flap of the book, it says this common sense tips like turning off notifications or occasional rituals like observing a digital Sabbath don't go far enough in helping us take back control of our technological lives and attempts to unplug completely are complicated by the demands of family, friends, and work. What we need instead is a thoughtful method to decide what tools to use for what purposes and under what conditions. And that really sums up what this book is about. Um, The cover copy also goes on to say, technology is intrinsically neither good nor bad. The key is using it to support your goals and values rather than letting it use you. This book shows the way. And it really does. He has a great premise, an interesting proposal, which I'll talk about in a minute and a a lot of very practical advice. The subtitle of the book is Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And that, you know, all by itself really resonated with me personally, because as I think I've talked about in the past, you know, we are living in a noisy world. There's always information coming at us, whether it's through our phones, our computers, the TV, wherever. Uh, there is nowhere to go for silence these days, it seems like. That's maybe an overstatement, but it's more common to be surrounded by literal noise and, and information coming at us than it is to be somewhere where things are silent. So that's what this book is talking about. We're going to, I'll share some of the highlights from it because it really spoke to me because of that, that thing that I've just talked about. Just for your information, he defines in the book, digital minimalism as a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. Uh, that happily miss out is a, a challenging thing. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but that's the definition of digital minimalism that he puts forward. And I think it's very intriguing to me that, you know, instead of just taking on every app and having a million things on your phones and your computers and coming at you, you're thoughtful about it. You're intentional about it. And you're choosing things that support the values you already hold instead of, just letting it take over your life and be okay with what you might be missing out. So the structure of the book, there's an introductory section where he talks about the genesis of digital minimalism movement as a response to the experience many of us have of the very tools we acquired to help us manage our lives, uh, having become more and more intrusive and more and more consumptive of our time and attention. And I, I don't know if you feel that way, but I certainly do. I love technology. You, you know, if you've been with me for very long, I love my Apple devices. I love my tech. I love trying out different apps and stuff, but over time it, it, it just becomes more and more intrusive and takes more and more of our time and attention. And it's kind of exhausting. And in this introductory section of the book, he talks about what he learned after publishing Deep Work, which is a book that lots and lots of productivity podcasters have talked about, uh, about what we need in order to do that kind of deep work that is creative and 
and thoughtful and all that sort of thing and how hard it is in our contemporary world. Well, after he published that, he went on a book tour and various conversations that he had, he learned of a widespread exhaustion reported by his readers and others he talked to resulting from what he says, and I'm quoting here, the overall impact of having so many different shiny baubles pulling so insistently at their attention and manipulating their mood. Uh, and that's, that's a key point there. He notes that And quoting again, few want to spend so much time online, but these tools have a way of cultivating behavioral addictions. The urge to check Twitter or refresh Reddit becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time into shards too small to support the presence necessary for an intentional life. I mean, that's a a pretty serious warning. And it, and it's true if you think about it, when there are always alerts going off or uh, different things demanding our attention, that uninterrupted time, if we have it, is moments here and there. And he talks about that the issue isn't a few minutes here and there spent online or checking social media feeds. It's the way the urge to do it interrupts what we're doing, you know, whatever project we're working on. Because accomplishing things that matter, whether it's a creative project or a meaningful conversation, requires uninterrupted time. And that's just what we seem to have so little of these days. I think it's important to note that this book is not anti-tech. Although Newport is not on social media, he's not anti-social media. He's not anti-tech. And digital minimalism is not about getting rid of all your tech you know, any more than the minimalism movement is about getting rid of all your stuff. It's about being intentional and thoughtful about what you use, when, how, and why. And one of the things he says in the book is smartphones, ubiquitous wireless internet, digital platforms that connect billions of people. These are triumphant innovations. He goes on to say few serious commentators think we'd be better off retreating to an earlier technological age. But at the same time, people are tired of feeling like they've become slave to their devices. This reality creates a jumbled emotional landscape where you can simultaneously cherish your ability to discover inspiring photos on Instagram while fretting about this app's ability to invade the evening hours you used to spend talking with friends or reading. And that's the the dichotomy. That's the, you know, the, the thing that's so difficult to live with. These devices and these apps and all the internet and all these things have enriched our lives in many ways. But on the other hand, they've also invaded and taken over in some ways. So all that's kind of from the introductory part of the book. And then basically the book has two sections. The first one is called Foundations and the second is called Practices. And the Foundations section kind of gives the philosophical underpinnings or the why of digital minimalism, as he puts it, starting with a closer examination of the forces that are making so many people's digital lives increasingly intolerable before moving on to a detailed discussion of the digital minimalism philosophy. So he really gets into it deep, but it's not dry reading. It's very interesting. I actually listened to 
the book first on Audible. And it was just so thought provoking and so fascinating that I bought a, you know, a hard copy of the book so that I could go back through it and kind of underline and, and mark some of the passages that I wanted to think about more. Some of them I'm going to share with you in this episode. So that's the foundations. He's laying the foundation for the proposal he makes, um, which is pretty radical. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, the proposal he makes is for us each to do a basically a 30 day digital detox where you eliminate all digital tools, apps, things like that, that aren't essential to your business or professional life. And he goes into how you can decide what's really essential, which ones you need to keep, uh, which apps and things, uh, services, things like that, and how to decide if something's essential or not. And then creating, creating operating procedures, kind of boundaries around when and how you'll use these tools during the 30 day period. Uh, this is not a one-time detox, uh, where you just, you know, you're going to take 30 days off and then just go back to the status the way it was before that. It's actually a period to break the hold these apps have on you. And then you become very intentional and he goes, you know, he really describes a great process for being very intentional about which one of these tools and apps and services you bring back into your life and under what circumstances. And the other piece of this proposal is during the 30 day digital detox, you don't just, you know, give up your apps and services and things, but you also actively go out and intentionally pursue other interests and activities, maybe things you used to do before you started spending every evening scrolling mindlessly through Facebook. So you go back and you, and again, he describes a great process, uh, pretty detailed for how you decide what could I do? What things could I try? What did I used to like to do? What have I always kind of wanted to do? So that during this 30 day period, it's not just you're depriving yourself of, you know, social media, but you're also actively going out there and pursuing other interests and activities and purposefully creating a different kind of life that's not dominated by online activities. And I think this is very interesting because just as we've talked in the past, it's harder to break a bad habit than it is to replace it with a good habit. And we've talked about that before, but it's a similar kind of thing. And throughout the book, he uses case studies and, you know, sort of testimonials from people who've done this process. He had reached out to his community through his, I think through his blog and got volunteers to actually go through this process and report on their experience of it. And a lot of them found that by the end of the 30 days, they had resumed activities, whether it was, you know, learning to play an instrument or learning an, a language or setting up dinners with friends or whatever it might be that they were so happy to be back involved in and that were so rewarding that by the end of the 30 days, they didn't miss the social media stuff that used to take up so much of their time or the electronic digital stuff. And um, it was much easier then to go forward and, and not let those things take over their life again. So that's kind of the radical idea that's at the center of the book. And the, the foundations are all 
sort of laying the, the, the justification for why this is a good idea. The second half of the book then is the practices book. And this is, as he puts it, a closer look at some ideas that will help you cultivate a sustainable digital minimalism lifestyle. And he has sections on spending time alone. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to go into detail on all on these practices, but want you to understand, or at least hear uh, some of what he recommends. So spend time alone. Don't click like, and he goes into a very interesting discussion about why, why clicking like on social media posts is not a great idea. The third practice that he talks about is reclaiming leisure. And then the fourth is join the attention resistance. And again, he gets into more depth and gives some great, very practical, actionable ideas for how you can do these things. So that's the basic structure of the book. That's the, and I'm obviously oversimplifying it. It's really, it may sound like it might be kind of dry, but it really isn't. It was a very thought provoking book with things that made me ponder uh, my own experience and choices that I've been making in terms of digital, you know, in life technology, technology that I have in my life, um, and gave some great suggestions and ideas and tips for things you can actually do to, to change that around. Then I wanted to share just a few of my key takeaways and some quotes from the book. And so the first key takeaway is that the tools, the the technology, the devices, the apps that we have adopted to make our lives more productive have consumed more and more of our time and attention, crowding out other pursuits that may have more intrinsic value. And that, that really is a key point of the book. And, you know, as I, I read, first listened to, and then read uh, his discussion of these ideas, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help reflecting on my own life. You know, I love technology, you know, I love apps and tools and stuff like that. But as I said earlier, I really have experienced how, uh, how easy it is for those things to sort of take over all your spare time to, to the point that you end up not doing other things that are really more valuable and more in line with my own personal priorities and values. So that was, that was one of the key takeaways for me. A, a second one is kind of related that these, these devices and apps have gone from being tools, which they were when they were first introduced, things that we use to achieve our own chosen purposes. They've gone from being tools to influences. That is, they've become things that trigger us to do things and affect our thoughts, emotions, and actions. And he really goes into some detail about how this works, how, you know, we, we adopted them as tools to help us accomplish things that we were already trying to do. And they've turned into these influences that, you know, change our mood. If you, you know, and, and I know you've probably experienced it. I know I have that, you know, reading a post on Facebook or something that came through Twitter can change our mood for the day. And that's never what these tools were intended to be, but they've become addictive. And that goes, uh, leads into the third takeaway that he talks about quite a bit in this book, that the addiction to these devices is not accidental. 
but it's actually the result of huge investments of time and money to exploit certain basic human qualities. One of the things that Newport says in the book, and, and this is a quote, people don't succumb to screens because they're lazy, but instead because billions of dollars have been invested to make this outcome inevitable. And he compares tech companies to cigarette companies in the sense that both study customers and invested money into researching and developing ways to keep us using their products. And this is not a conspiracy theory. He's got lots of factual backup from people in the tech industries that actually compare what they've done to the way um, the cigarette companies were found to be working back in the day. One of the things he says is the hot new technologies that emerged in the past decade or so are particularly well-suited to foster behavioral addictions, leading people to use them much more than they think is useful or healthy. And he talks about what a behavioral addiction is. It's something, you know, that's been discovered to be a real thing, just like physiological addictions to drugs or alcohol or something like that. There are behavioral addictions and he, he kind of spells that out. He also says, uh, according to various industry whistleblowers and several studies that have been published, uh, he says, and I'm quoting, these technologies are in many cases specifically designed to trigger this addictive behavior. Compulsive use in this context is not the result of a character flaw, but instead the realization of a massively profitable business plan. So the tech companies, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, any of these that we find ourselves compulsively checking over and over throughout the day on our phones or wherever, they have literally researched ways to make their products so compelling to draw us back in. So in the case of the tech, they intentionally design features that take advantage of human psychology through the use of uh, something called intermittent positive reinforcement. That's one thing. And the drive for social approval. Newport goes into some depth discussing how this works and what features have been developed using these things. So for instance, features like the Facebook like button or its facial recognition that allows us to tag friends in our photos. These things were not developed to serve us, the user, but to encourage us to spend more time using the app. They literally were designed to draw us in and keep us in the app. And it's important, he talks about this in the book, and I've, I've seen this discussion elsewhere. When you're talking about something like Facebook comes up a lot because it's so ubiquitous. Everybody, almost everybody uses it. And it's important to realize when we are using Facebook, we are not the customer. We are not Facebook's customer. We are their product. Their customer is the advertisers and they are selling us. They are selling our attention, our eyeballs on the screen. And they've spent a lot of money, all of these, um, technologies have spent a lot of money researching and developing ways to keep our eyeballs on the screen, looking at their app, because that's what they sell to advertisers and that's how they make their money.
I just think that's really important. Maybe I've spent a little too much time talking about it, but he gives lots of backup, scientific backup for the things that I've just said from the book. Um, Studies that have been done whistleblowers that have been, you know, formerly employed with these or, you know, involved in the development of these products have come forward to talk about this. So we're not just making this up. This is, you know, this is a real thing. A fourth takeaway that I took from the book is that it's possible, it's even likely that the costs of extensive use of these technologies outweigh the purported benefits. And one of the things he says about this is, we signed up for these services and bought these devices for minor reasons, to look up friends' relationship statuses or eliminate the need to carry a separate iPod and and phone, and then found ourselves years later increasingly dominated by their influence, allowing them to control more and more of how we spend our time, how we feel, and how we behave. And, you know, if you think about how often you reach for your phone, and he's got statistics in there, again, from studies of how many times the average person looks at their smartphone or checks their status in an app or things like that. And really think about it. What is your first go? And maybe you're not like this. If you're not, I'd love to hear from you of how how you use technology, if you use it, um, how you've avoided these sort of addictive properties of it. But for most of us, what's the first thing we do if we're bored, if we're standing in line or we're waiting in the doctor's office or, you know, whatever, we don't have a conversation most of the time with a real person. We don't, you know, pull a book out and read it. We, we pull up our phones and just kind of mindlessly scroll through our Facebook feed or Instagram feed or something like that. And if we've gotten lots of likes of one of our posts or lots of comments, we're, you know, we're jazzed about that. We get that dopamine hit. Um, and if somebody's, you know, unliked it or unfriended us or something like that, that affects our mood as well. And those are just kind of the basic uh, points that he makes. He goes much deeper into the science of it. So it's really worth reading the book just to get that background, to give you something to think about in how and when you use uh, these technologies. The fifth takeaway kind of comes out of the the second half of the book where he's talking about the practices. And I told you he, the, f- the first chapter, I think in that section is about um, spending time alone. And it really was interesting to read. He, he gave some great examples like President Abraham Lincoln and other people, scientists and stuff, talking about solitude and getting away. Um, and so the takeaway is the crucial importance of solitude for our psychological health and our productivity and the threat to solitude that's posed by unrestricted use of technology. There, he talks a lot about this, and it was just, it's one of the things that's really stuck with me. And from his perspective, solitude is more than just physical separation, because you can be alone and not experiencing solitude. It goes deeper than that. He defines it as solitude as a subjective state in which your mind is free from input of other minds. So if you are alone, so you're isolated, 
but you might not be experiencing solitude if you're looking at social media, if you're surfing the web and looking, you're reading blog posts or even listening to podcasts. Right now, your mind is getting input from my mind. So that's not solitude, even though you may be alone. And obviously I think podcasts can be a great thing, but we need to build in more times of solitude into our life. And I'll talk about reasons why, because our minds need this to be psychologically healthy. One of the things he says is solitude. Remember that he's defining it as this subjective state in which your mind is free from input from other minds. So he says, solitude requires you to move past reacting to information created by other people and focus instead on your own thoughts and experiences wherever you happen to be. We are not good at that these days. I mean, you might be, but we as a society are not good at being alone with our thoughts and yet we need it. And he makes a very strong case for this in the book. He talks about solitude deprivation. He defines it as a state in which you spend close to zero time alone with your own thoughts and free from input from other minds. He says, most of us are experiencing solitude deprivation because we're almost never alone without input from other minds. He says, when you avoid solitude, you miss out on the positive things it brings to you, the ability to clarify hard problems, to regulate your emotions, to build moral courage, and to strengthen relationships. He sums it up by saying, if you suffer from chronic solitude deprivation, therefore the quality of your life degrades. And I just ask you to think about that. Does that resonate with you? Does that feel true in your life that if you are never alone with your thoughts, does that degrade the quality of your life? In the book, he uses the generation born after 1995 as kind of the canary in the coal mine, um, because we can watch them and see the effects of chronic solitude deprivation. They are the first generation to enter their preteens with access to smartphones, tablets, and widespread internet access. Uh, He says that parents and teachers note their constant use of their devices. And that a 2015 study found that teenagers were consuming media, including text messaging and social media, nine hours per day on average. Think about that. And I've certainly observed this in my young, uh, my granddaughters who are in some of them in their preteens and how when they come to visit, Uh, they always have their phones in their hand. They're always doing things with it, messaging back and forth with their friends, doing things like that. And this study, as I said, is showing that this generation, teenagers are spending about nine hours a day on average consuming different kinds of media. He talks about how a college administrator who is the head of mental health services at a well-known university told him that she had observed shifts in student mental health. And she said, and I'm quoting here, until recently, the mental health center on campus had seen the same mix of teenage issues that have been common for decades, homesickness, eating disorders, some depression, and the occasional case of OCD. 
Then, she says, everything changed. Seemingly overnight, the number of students seeking mental health counseling massively expanded, and the standard mix of teenage issues was dominated by something that used to be relatively rare, anxiety. She goes on to say that, or he says in the book, the sudden rise of anxiety-related problems coincided with the first incoming classes of students that were raised on smartphones and social media. So there's, um, they're seeing a correlation that in this generation, the, the canary in the coal mine generation, born after 1995, raised with smartphones and internet everywhere, this college administrator is seeing a drastic and almost sudden overwhelming increase in anxiety among these students. And he goes in the in the book, he goes into what they think the sources of this anxiety are, the, you know, the social approval kinds of things. Uh, he cites some similar information from an expert on generational differences among American youth. So this is in America. And he's quoting uh, this expert. He says, young people born between 1995 and 2012 exhibited remarkable differences as compared to the millennials that preceded them. One of the biggest and most troubling changes was their psychological health. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed with much of this seemingly due to a massive increase in anxiety disorders. And this expert correlates all of this directly to the constant connectedness and an almost complete absence of solitude. There is simply no time when these younger generations are alone with their thoughts. And I can, again, say with my granddaughters, they take their phones to bed with them and they lay in bed late at night, texting back and forth with their friends or doing TikTok videos and stuff like that. So they're almost round the clock, except for those few hours when they're sleeping, they are taking in information from other people's minds and they're not alone with their thoughts. I could go more into this. As I said, looking at this generation, we're seeing what the impacts are, but the impacts are uh, affect all of us. The impact of this chronic solitude deprivation, this is just a great illustration of it. The fifth key takeaway for me uh, from the book was the importance of leisure and going along with that, the difference between leisure and sort of doing nothing. So he, in the chapters about this, he describes and makes the case for several, what he calls leisure lessons, uh, things we should do for the use of our leisure time, which is time not committed to work and, and other, other things like that. And the leisure lessons, which I won't you know, go deep in, but they are prioritize demanding activity over passive consumption, uh, use skills to produce valuable things in the physical world, creating things. Uh, he, one of the things he says in this chapter is in a culture where screens replace craft, people lose the outlet for self-worth established through unambiguous demonstrations of skill. So he 
talks about good uses of our leisure time include using some kind of skill to produce valuable things in the physical world, where that's whether that's a piece of music or a you know a craft thing or a piece of furniture or whatever. And the third lesson is seek activities that require real world structured social interactions. So this is something we can do during start during that 30 day detox and carry forward into the rest of our lives. He recommends specific practices to develop in place of using screen time to soothe boredom. So instead of turning to our screen and sort of passively consuming other people's ideas, starting during that 30-day digital detox period, do these specific practices. Fix or build something every week. Second one is schedule your low-quality leisure. That is, put boundaries around screen time, social media, etc., The third one is to join something. And the fourth is to follow what he calls leisure plans. And he goes into more detail in the book and it was very helpful. And I'm trying to figure out how to kind of do these things in my own life. So those are my key takeaways. Probably a key message of the book that has really stuck with me is that making small changes in our use of technology, like silencing alerts or taking days off from tech use, is not enough. Those things are good, but they're not enough. We need to change our mindset about tech usage from maximalism to minimalism. And he describes maximalism is, which is the attitude most of us have is if a new technology has some benefit, that's good enough justification to adopt it. That's maximalism. Whereas technological minimalism, the attitude is that it has to serve a deeply held value and do so in a significant way before we adopt a new technology, whether it's a new app, a new device, what a new service, whatever. So being very thoughtful about what we bring into our lives is necessary. And a couple of things he said on this point, he says, by working backward from their deep values to their technology choices, digital minimalists transform these innovations from a source of distraction into tools to support a life well-lived. By doing so, they break the spell that has made so many people feel like they're losing control to their screens. And I just love that, that idea of being thoughtful and intentional turning those, these innovative tools back to what they were intended to be, which is tools to support a life well-lived. And then the last thing he said that I'll share is minimalists don't mind missing out on small things. What worries them much more is diminishing the large things they already know for sure make a good life good. Great thought. So a couple final thoughts on this. I have, as I've mentioned, and as you know, if you've been with me for a while, I've been a bit of a tech geek for quite some time, but even I have noticed the effects of life dominated by technology. This book gave me a lot of food for thought, and I'm really working on incorporating some of the lessons from this book into my own life. 
Newport in Digital Minimalism presents a specific, well-reasoned approach to taking control of your life back from the technology and provides specific, actionable suggestions for putting this philosophy into practice in a way that works for your particular life. He's not, you know, dictating this is how your life needs to be. He just gives you tools to put all this into practice in a way that works for you in a very thoughtful and a very intentional and purposeful way. And I highly recommend this book. If you haven't read it, uh, I, I do recommend that you check it out. But those are my thoughts. What do you think? Have you read Digital Minimalism? If so, I'd love to know what you think, what you took away from it. You can share your takeaways with us. Or if you haven't read it, what's a productivity-related book you've read recently that you'd recommend? You can share this uh, and any other thoughts about this topic in the comment section of the show notes at theproductivewoman.com slash 366 or post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page. Or if you are a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, that's a place I'd love to continue this conversation. I'd like your ideas on this, your reactions to it, what you think about his kind of radical idea, and if you've ever done something like that. As always, if you prefer to share your thoughts with me privately, you can email your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com, and I'd love to hear from you. I would appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode or if you just generally enjoy the Productive Woman podcast, that you'd help spread the word and and grow the community. Tell a friend. That's the best way uh, for people to find a podcast uh, is by personal recommendation of someone they know and trust. So tell a friend who you think might be interested in this topic or something else that we've talked about on the show. You can share this episode or any other by going to the, you know, the page, the show notes on the website at theproductivewoman.com slash, you know, whatever the episode number is. And this one is 366. At the top of the show notes, there are social sharing buttons. So you can share a link, just click on that and share it to your social media feed. And I would appreciate that. You can always leave a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you listen to this through. They all have a feature that allows you to share a review. It's always helpful. I like getting feedback. I want to know if what I'm doing here is helping. I want to say a special thanks to a couple of people who've left nice reviews Uh, recently, GL Duke from the United States said, called it smart productivity content and says, Laura's episodes are full of wisdom. I'm a better leader because of her thoughtful and well-researched topics. And I really appreciated that. Um, Erica Bushwell from the United States uh, gave a review in Apple Podcasts uh, titled Awesome Podcast. And Erica said, Laura, host of the Productive Woman Podcast, highlights all aspects of life, time management, growth, and more in this can't miss podcast. The host and expert guests offer insightful advice and motivational information that is helpful to anyone that listens. And so, you know, wow. Thank you so much, Erica, for those kind words. It was great to hear. Uh, And to GL Duke, uh, both of you, thanks for taking the time to review the podcast. And thank you for listening. And that is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. As always, I am so grateful to you for spending this time with me. I don't take it for granted. I hope that I've offered you something that 
you know, enhances your life, maybe some food for thought, but something that's helpful to you. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter. Matter.